Oh man, I don't know if we need a message after that. That was awesome. Wow. Hey, thanks for being here, everybody. Whether you're in here in the room with us or watching online right now, uh, I was just looking at the, the numbers before the services this morning, and we're, we're back to more people online than in person. So, uh, But we're glad you're here, whether you are with us from your living room or travel or whatever you're doing right now, um, or whether you're here in the room, uh, whatever it is. We know this is a difficult time, a challenging time. It's very different for all of us, but we're glad that you're making worshiping God a priority today as we gather as a family of God together uh, in many different places as it happens. Um, this weekend was a sad one and a happy one, full of sad memories and happy memories. I, I remember exactly where I was 20 years ago yesterday. I'm sure many of you do as well. And, and we remember the tragedy that occurred when the two towers came down. I remember uh, listening to the radio hearing about the first one and then watching as the second one came down and what, a, um, what an unbelievable, truly unbelievable and devastating day that was. And we had no idea what we were in for. I had actually been in the towers one month earlier, um, right before they came down. And so I knew people that were there and they all got out safely. Uh, but it was, it was such, such a devastating and tragic day. And yesterday we got to take our family down to see the flags at Forest Park. Did anybody else get down there to see the flags? That was quite an incredible display, really, really amazing. We got to share, my wife and I share the stories um, and what happened with our kids and just kind of help them to understand the significance of that day. Um, that was a dark and scary time, wasn't it? I mean, I remember just the confusion that surrounded that. It seemed like everything changed in one day. Everything was just so different from that one day and, and a, a lot of scary times. But then after that afternoon, I went home and worked on my message for today. And then I got to hang out with some of our founding members of this church, Velma Jost and Jack and Judy Curls and, and a bunch of other people to hear their stories about the founding of First Free. And they had all kinds of memories and all kinds of stories that they shared. And it was a really sweet time to, to hear. Lots of details I hadn't heard before. Lots of funny things, crazy things, the struggles of those first few years and what they went through as a church to, to get to where we're at today. I mean, it's really incredible. Memories can be powerful. Memories can be amazing. Sometimes I think back to before this whole pandemic started, this just radically changed our lives. You know, it was, a, it was a, in some ways another 9-11, just in the sense that it's just such a significant event that affects everybody. And all of a sudden, everything is different in so many ways. Do you ever think back to before the pandemic started, like how our lives have changed so much since then and how differently we think? I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I was thinking back to... Uh, to January of 2020. We were so innocent back then. Man, we had no idea what we were in for. Probably you made some New Year's resolutions. Get outside more often. Spend more time with family. Finally get around to that home renovation you'd been thinking about. Little did you know what was going to happen over the next six months and year and a half now. It's amazing. Back in January of 2020, this is what a blues game looked like. Over 18,000 people attended this game. Not a mask in sight. No social distancing. Man, that was a different world. And the St. Louis Aquarium had just opened. Thousands of people were pouring into this place and seeing the new attraction. And in January of 2020, our newest family member was just a couple months old, just a little, little baby. There she is with her big brother making her laugh. Here's Ari yesterday. She's changed a little bit. 
That was apple picking. The biggest story of the year in 2020 was sure to be the wildfires in Australia. Anybody remember those? That was a thing back then. That was going to be the biggest thing that happened in 2020. Can you believe it? And you may not realize this. In fact, you probably forgot that that even happened until right now. But you may not realize this. It burned through 37,500 square miles of land. That is 50 times larger than the largest California wildfire ever recorded. 50 times larger. And you didn't even remember it existed until right now because of everything that happened in 2020. Crazy memories, crazy times. And there was something else that happened in January 2020. We started a new series that was going to take us through the entire year. We were so excited about this. The elders had worked for about a year on a position paper on the issue of women and church leadership. And it mostly revolved around a section of First Timothy. And so we were going to do a book study through First Timothy, and we got through the first chapter. And then everything just went up in smoke. And we had to change it all. And all of our lives were interrupted in so many ways. And so we, we pivoted and we started to study the life of Joseph because here's a guy who more than anybody else, it seems, his life was interrupted just again and again and again. We tried to glean principles from that that we could use to uh, help us to understand how we could handle our life being interrupted in so many different ways. And so we put 1 Timothy on the shelf because it deals with some controversial issues. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is one of the passages that was used by slave owners to support, uh, to try to support from the Bible their owning of slaves. That's a pretty big issue. 1 Timothy 2 is probably the, the uh, primary passage that deals with women and men's roles in church leadership, and that's a pretty big issue. And we said we don't want to be scattered all over the place and everybody watching online when we're covering these major topics. So we're just going to hold off on that, and we're going to wait until, you know, maybe uh, summer of 2020 when we're all back together. We all know how that worked out. So then we waited, and we're not going to get into it in the fall because we had the second wave, and then we waited, and it's springtime, and we're still not through this, and we waited. And we said at that point with the elders, come this fall, 2021, we are dealing with this thing one way or another. Whether everybody's back in the room or not, we are going to have to get back to this thing and go through 1 Timothy and publish our position paper and deal with some of these difficult issues. Now, the reason I'm giving you kind of all of this history of this is because I, I want you to know that, especially in October, we're going to get into some dicey territory, some controversial stuff. And ideally, everyone's going to be in the room. And I know that right now, typically on a typical Sunday now, there are more people watched online that are in the room. And most of those people we know from their IP addresses, not that we're tracking you individually or anything or tying those to giving records or anything like that. No, no, no. We can't do that. But we know that most of those people are in the St. Louis area. And as we get into some of these trickier topics, I want to encourage everybody who's watched online, you may want to be in the room because it's just so much better to have this conversation face to face. And you can come up afterward and ask questions and we can get into some of the specifics of the more difficult issues that we're going to talk through. Paul's going to get into the weeds on a lot of things. And so what I want to do today is we're, we're going to just look at the first chapter. Now, we spent four weeks on this chapter in January of 2020. We're just going to spend today on it. And you can go back and watch those earlier messages if you want to. I want to set the table for the rest of the series. As we get into these controversial issues, which I do encourage you to be in the room for, if you can. I know some people can't, but if you can. I want to set the stage in a way that's going to help us understand Paul's primary motivation in writing this letter to Timothy, his 
what we know of as his first letter to Timothy. I'm sure it wasn't actually his first. And I want you to understand that because we're going to get into some of these controversial topics. Some of these topics are just really specific and detailed. And it's going to be really easy over the next few months as we study this letter together to get lost in those details and lost in the weeds and not remember what is the main thing he wanted to get across. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The main point of this whole letter. And Paul's going to use chapter one as his introduction to that. So if you've got your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it up or turn it on or whatever you do and go to first Timothy chapter one. And we're going to read through this whole chapter together. And then I'm going to make a few points about it that are just designed to help set up the whole rest of this series. First Timothy chapter one, verse one says this, this letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus appointed by the command of God, our savior and Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead them to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. We know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they may, might learn not to blaspheme God. Let's pause right there and pray and ask God for wisdom as we study this book of the Bible. Heavenly Father, we are so 
so blessed to have words that come from you through Paul, even though they were delivered originally a couple of thousand years ago. We see so much relevance in them today. So many things that we can relate to, that we can see. And in some ways, it is encouraging to know that the early church struggled with the same types of things we struggle with today. God, but help us to learn from them. Help us to draw these principles and bridge the context from back then to now to understand what are those timeless things that we need to take and learn from and apply in our own lives and in our own church and in our own community, God. Help us to tap in and understand a little bit about this church in Ephesus that Paul wrote to so long ago and to be able to learn things that will help us be a better church and better followers of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we dig into this chapter one, and I'm not gonna go into nearly the detail that I did uh, a couple of years ago. So those messages are still online. You can watch them. You can go into the detail if you want to. I decided to go back and say, if I were gonna give just a summary message of chapter one that tried to set up the rest of the series, what would I want you to know? And I thought of three C's. There's three of them, and they're all start with the same letter because I'm a pastor and we do things like that. So the three C's are the context, the concern, and the challenge. The context, the concern, and the challenge. If you just walk away knowing those things today, you will have a pretty good foundation for the rest of this letter that we're gonna go through over the next few months. Because chapter one in 1 Timothy is an introduction to the rest of the letter. Paul is establishing some basic foundational principles that he's then gonna build on and go into more detail later on. And that detailed level of instruction could cause us to get off track if we're not careful. Especially because we're gonna do such a deep dive into this letter. This is not just four weeks in 1 Timothy and then we're done. This is like a few months in 1 Timothy. We're gonna look at it with some granularity. This is gonna be a pretty deep study of it. And as we do that, we always run the risk on any given week of pulling out those couple of verses that we're analyzing this week and making such a big deal about whatever detail is covered there that we forget the big picture. And so my hope today is to help you see the big picture of what is Paul trying to do with this letter in 1 Timothy, and then that we keep that in mind and we can reference back to it as we go through these other weeks so that we don't get distracted by some of the details that are important, but don't make up the main deal. The big point that Paul is trying to make overall. He's going to give specific instruction, but we have to be careful to keep that in context of the whole bigger picture. And the first thing I want to do is talk about the context of this letter. Who wrote it? Who is it written to? And uh, what is the setting of its writing? So the context, Paul, the author, Timothy, the recipient, the church in Ephesus, the place where Timothy was leading. And we want to know a little bit about each of these things to help us understand what is going to follow. The Apostle Paul was not one of Jesus' original 12 apostles. Judas was one of those 12 selected, and obviously we know what happened there, and so he had to be replaced. The disciples tried to replace him with a couple other people, but eventually Jesus Christ himself chose Paul to be an apostle. And so Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ, and the way that happened was was quite amazing. It was very unique and very miraculous because Paul was actually a killer of Christians. He was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And he would go around hunting down and killing Christians because of their faith, because they were pulling people away from Judaism, in particular, Pharisaical Judaism. And and Paul was a very ardent supporter of Pharisaical Judaism. And so he was was considered a a pretty big guy in the Jewish world, and he would go around and, and persecute and kill these Christians. And it was actually on one of those trips to Damascus 
where he was going to look for Christians that, that Jesus showed up in this blinding light and Paul had this amazing conversion experience where Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And they had this conversation. Long story short, Paul ends up believing in Jesus Christ. And it was such a radical transformation that the, the other followers of Jesus didn't believe it at first. They're like, this has got to be a trick, right? He's saying this so that he can get close to us, find out where we all live, and then he's going to wipe us out. But it was true. Paul had this amazing encounter with Jesus and Jesus radically transformed his life. That's why we say one of our core values is Jesus is the difference. That's what everyone should see in us. If we've trusted in Jesus, there should be a radical transformation. We should have different goals and desires. We should live differently, not just today, but Monday through Saturday. He should make a difference in our life to the point where people go, wow, there is something different about you. And that's exactly what happened with Paul, a radical transformation. Now, Paul ended up becoming this great missionary that planted churches all over the place. But that didn't happen overnight. Paul actually had some years of training before he got to that point. He didn't just go from the Damascus Road experience to planting churches right away. He actually went off into the desert for a while, and he, and he studied under Jesus himself. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says, I didn't receive this from any person, but from Jesus Christ directly. So Jesus taught Paul a lot of what he learned before Paul even ended up interacting with other apostles and learning from them as well. So that's the author of this letter. He was heavily involved in the church at Ephesus. Actually, when he first arrived, there were already believers there, but he helped to form it into a church. And then he's writing to a young man, Timothy, who he put over this church in Ephesus. So let's talk a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was probably in his 30s at this point. He was a believer in Jesus that Paul had identified as someone who had a lot of potential, and he took him under his wing, and he mentored him for a while before equipping him for ministry. And Paul did this. We, we think about Paul's missionary journeys, and sometimes I know when I was much younger, I used to think that Paul just sort of traveled around on his own, but that's not what happened. Paul always had a team of people with him traveling on these journeys. And so one of the people that would travel with him for some time was Timothy, and he had others as well, Titus and different people. Luke was with him. And Paul would invest in his smaller circle. Even as he was preaching to the crowds, he had an inner circle that he was investing in, spending more time with, training them and raising them up, and then empowering them to go do ministry, to fill certain leadership roles in different ministries, different churches. And so that's what he did with Timothy. That's what he did with Titus and and with others. So he put Titus in charge of the church in Crete. And he put Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus. And Priscilla Aquila traveled with Paul for a while and then settled in Ephesus and helped with the church there. It's important as we read Paul's letters that we understand he is responding to something. If you've ever read through the New Testament, you may have found yourself thinking, this is really like disjointed. Even in an individual letter like 1 Timothy, as we go through it, we're going to be over here on some topic, and then Paul's going to jump over here, and then he's going to do another thing and another thing, and he's going to jump back over here. And it's like, wow, couldn't you have just sat down and worked out an outline? Like just, this was not make a good term paper, Paul. You got to really think through your flow and make sure that everything is, is organized in a certain way, and it doesn't come across that way to us. And I think a part of that is because Paul did not just sit down one day and go, I think I'm going to write about a bunch of random stuff to Timothy. No, he got letters and messengers from these different churches. And when he's writing his letters, or sometimes we call them epistles, back to these churches, he's responding to them. Have you ever gotten a really long email? Like a really long email. And they didn't do any bullet points, which is just crazy. You should always put bullet points in your emails. 
No bullet points, paragraphs of text, just text, 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 text. And somewhere buried in that novel are the questions you're supposed to answer. You know what I'm talking about? And you have to read it through like an archaeologist trying to decipher, okay, what are they wanting me to say? And what are they getting at? And I'm not quite sure what they're asking. Some of you are smiling a little, little too hard. Maybe you've gotten one of those letter emails from me. I don't know. But when you reply to that email, you're looking through the original one that you got and going, okay, what do I need to address? What did, what did they say over here that I need to make sure I speak to over here? And the end result, if someone were to just kind of look at it, you know, out of the blue, they might go, well, this is just some random stuff here. Why did you hit on all these things? But the person receiving the letter knows exactly why you did, because it's what they were asking for. And it may not be the best organized or like you sat down and wrote a whole, you know, systematic paper on something, but it talked to all of their issues. And that's how you have to think about Paul's epistles. If they seem disjointed to you, well, they weren't originally written to you. They are for you. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what God wanted Paul to say. But the original setting of these letters is he's responding to questions. Hey, Paul, we're struggling with this. Hey, Paul, we're dealing with this issue over here. Hey, Paul, what do I do about this? And Paul's going, okay, let me just go through this and let me respond to all these things. Either what came in a letter to him or what came through the messengers to him or both. Because a messenger would bring a letter and then those messengers, often a team of people, would then share things. In in, uh, the letters to Corinth, Paul says, it was Chloe's people that came and told me stuff. And now I'm responding to some of the issues they brought up to me. So just keep that in mind as we go through this letter. If it seems a little disjointed, a little choppy, a little chaotic, it's because he's replying all to this. He's saying, okay, let me just reply to this and give you a bunch of information. And and Paul knew that this was going to get spread around. So the way this worked in the early church is the churches collected letters from people like Paul, like baseball cards. And they would receive a letter from Paul, and they would immediately begin the work of copying it. So they'd make several copies of this letter, and they would distribute it to the different people in their church to be read aloud in their church gatherings if they weren't able to do it all together as one big church. And then they would send some copies to the next church over. So the the letter to 1 Timothy would get copied, and somebody would run it over to Galatia. And, And when Paul sent his letter to the Galatians, they would run a copy over to Ephesus. And so they would exchange these letters like this, and that is how we wound up with the New Testament, because all of these churches had their own library where they collected copies of these letters, and that's kind of how these got distributed. So they would collect letters from Paul and James and John and the others, and that's how we got the New Testament today. But remember that Paul is responding to communication that he has received from Timothy, from Ephesus, and that's why it's going to seem like this might be a little bit choppy. Now, Paul is, is, uh, says to Timothy that one of the reasons why he put Timothy in charge of this church in Ephesus is because they were dealing with some bad teaching by members of this church or by people that were infiltrating their church. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But first, let me talk to you about Ephesus, the city. Ephesus was a big city. It was one of the top 10 cities in the world at the time. Archaeologists estimate between 150,000 and 250,000 people. That's a lot of people. It was a major cultural epicenter. Multiple transportation networks intersected in this place. And so it was very diverse. There were a lot of different types of people that would come to Ephesus. It was also a huge tourist city, which we'll get into a little bit later. There was a theater in this city that could hold 25,000 spectators. 25,000, that's more people than were at the hockey game I showed you a picture of earlier. 25,000 people in this theater. The church in Ephesus was also quite large. And this is something that's probably useful to know as we go through this letter. 
Luke says in Acts 19 that Paul found several believers were already there in Ephesus when he arrived, but they weren't very organized. Paul spent three months teaching them in the local synagogue. Then they moved into a lecture hall where they met for two years. And this church grew rapidly during this time. It became a missions hub that sent people all over the region sharing the good news about Jesus with tons of people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And more and more people were believing in Jesus. This church became so big that the local merchants were concerned for their business because so many people were becoming part of the Christian church, the new Christian church. Now, why would the merchants care about this? Why would they be concerned about all these people joining a church? Who cares? Well, one of the biggest businesses around was that of selling little temple artifacts and, and keepsakes and yeah, keychains, shotgun, or shot glasses, uh, not shotguns probably, uh, shot glasses, you know, decorative spoons, you know, you know the things that you buy when you go places. I don't know exactly what the items were other than they had some idols, but they had all these, these items of merchandise that they were making because Ephesus was a major tourist trap. In fact, the reason they had such a big pagan temple there to Artemis or Diana, as it's sometimes called, was because it was a phenomenal money-making enterprise. If people think it's all about the, the pagan temple worship, and certainly there were some people that believed in that stuff, but there were a lot of people that were in it for a buck. And it was, it was the, they had this story, they had this mythology around it that a comet had come down from Earth. I mean, they didn't call it a comet, but, but this is what we think it was, that, that an image of Artemis descended from heaven, and it was probably a comet that landed there, and they built a temple around it, and they made this whole big story about this, this goddess Diana or Artemis that they built this massive, beautiful, I mean, wonder of the world temple to. And it was this huge tourist trap. And they were at the intersection of multiple highways. And so people would come through there. And, and it was a big city too, one of the biggest cities in the world at the time. And these people liked their temple stuff, their idols and, and other items that they would get from the merchants. Well, Christianity grew so rapidly in this area that it started to threaten the bottom line of these merchants. And they were wondering, are we even going to have a business if this thing keeps growing? Because as soon as people become a Christian, they throw out all of their idols and all of their pagan temple worship stuff, and they start telling their friends, hey, you don't need to buy that stuff anymore. That's not real. I found something that's real. I found a faith in, in Jesus Christ, and that's so much better than anything the temple has to offer. And so this was very concerning to these businessmen, and one of them in particular was so upset about this that he told his fellow merchants, hey, look, guys, if this keeps going on, we aren't going to have a business at all. In fact, we may not have a temple anymore because this thing is growing so rapidly. This is a big church in a big city, and it's a big problem for these guys. And so they stir up a riot, a huge riot. And eventually the mayor gets involved. And the, this, is all, this is all in Acts, by the way. We're, I'm not going to go to the passages right now. But uh, the mayor gets involved and he has to kind of quell this riot because he's concerned that the Romans are going to notice and they're going to come in and they're going to cause problems because the city is in an uproar. Why is the city in an uproar? Because these merchants are afraid they're going to lose their business because the Christians have been so effective at growing their church. That's the church in Ephesus. We often think of the early churches as being these small little house churches, right? And Timothy was probably leading a group of 30 or 40 people in a house. No, not at all. These were big churches. The gospel spread quickly. And they didn't view themselves as parts of little autonomous churches, you know, first church of this over here and first church of that over here. No, no. They all viewed themselves as part of the church in Ephesus. And so there were a lot of people that were part of the church in Ephesus. The same thing was true in Jerusalem. 
There were thousands of people who were part of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Philadelphia, same thing. Antioch, same thing. Uh, Crete, same thing. Big churches. Two, 4,000, 5,000 people churches and constantly growing, scattered around the city, but view themselves as part of the same big regional church. James was the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And Timothy was the senior pastor in Ephesus. Titus was the senior pastor in Crete. John would eventually be one of the senior pastors in Ephesus, most likely. And these were large multi-site churches that gathered in different places. Of course, they didn't have the technology we have today to be able to stream the service to wherever it's going, and they couldn't do it that way. And so what would happen is Titus would go around to the different towns where they had different groups of believers meeting in Crete, and he would, he would share things with them. In fact, at one point, Paul in his letter to Titus says, hey, I left you there so that you could go around to the different towns and appoint elders in every place. In all of your different sites, all of your different groups, I want you to have church leaders there to help shepherd them, but they're all part of this big church that you, Titus, oversee. That was the church in Crete. Same thing in Ephesus with Timothy. Honestly, First Free Church and churches like it look somewhat similar to the early church. You know, we, we think that the whole idea of the large church is a new thing, but actually it went on a hiatus for a while and it kind of came back in the 80s and 90s, and it's not that unlike the early church. The church in Jerusalem was a few thousand people. They met on the temple steps every weekend for worship and prayer, and then they would meet in homes throughout the week. That was the model. That was the pattern of many of these early churches. Now, certainly there were smaller communities that had a smaller church in them as well. But in these big regions, in these big cities, that's what the church looked like. A big church with a lot of people who were, had a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. Scale brought a lot of challenges for sure. The church in Jerusalem, for instance, the apostles, as this started to grow, they started to realize that they couldn't care for everyone effectively as shepherds of this church. And so what did they do? They came up with a plan. All these people were coming to them and saying, you're not caring for my needs. You're not caring for my needs. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. I need you to help me with this. And they went, whoa, 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 this thing is going way bigger than we ever expected. I mean, that's great. That's an awesome problem to have, but we can't deal with this at scale. We're only a few people. And now there's like hundreds and then thousands of people that have demands on us. And so what did they do? What did they create? They created a new office for the church that had never existed before. Anybody know what it's called? The deacons, they created this new thing called the deacons. Why? So that they could delegate some care and shepherding responsibilities to the deacons so that the church leaders could focus on preaching, on prayer, and on leading the church because they had to create some kind of a, a bit of a hierarchy. It's also called the Jethro principle. It's what Jethro told Moses to do. It's how Jesus structured his apostles. And they had to create some extra roles in the church for people to have some delegated care and responsibility and authority. And, and so Paul continues that with Titus when he says, go around and appoint elders in every community. He's saying, hey, you need to make sure that in the great size of this church that we continue to care for people, but it can't all be done by a few people. It has to be spread out by different people and delegated to different people. So that's the context of the church in Ephesus. And I, I think that'll be helpful as we get into some of the specifics in future weeks. But there's another C that I want you to remember. Um, another C that we'll see in verse 3 here of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The second C is the concern, and Paul's concern is distractions. 
He's concerned that, that people in this church are going to get distracted from the things that really matter. False teachers were coming in and wasting people's time on all sorts of things. The word Paul uses here is very important because sometimes people um, have misunderstood this to mean that, well, we shouldn't talk about those things. If we've got theories about spiritual things, if we've got ideas, if we've got questions about faith, you know what? You just have to believe you don't talk about those things. And I can't tell you how many young people have at some point in their life gone up to a pastor and said, hey, I'm not so sure about this. Can I ask you about this? Because I've got a question. I'm skeptical about this. And, and tragically, oftentimes, not, maybe not oftentimes, but sometimes the pastor will say, you know what? You just have to believe. We don't talk about that. Let's not get into that. At least that's what's reported. And the person leaves the church because they think, well, <laughs> Obviously, the church doesn't have the answers because I brought up this question that's important to me that I would like to understand. I think I found a contradiction. I think I found something that doesn't make sense. And rather than talk about it, the pastor just wants to sweep it under the rug. And that is not at all what Paul is telling us to do here. He's not saying stop talking about anything that, that might be considered to be kind of fringe or secondary because it's all meaningless speculation. He's not saying you can't talk about those things. And I want to be clear about that because he uses a specific word here. His word for wasting time is a word that means devoted. It's sometimes used in the ancient world to talk about addictions. See, the problem that was going on in Ephesus was not that people were talking about interesting spiritual things or that they were just throwing out some ideas of what about this and what about that and maybe we should figure this out. Paul is not saying we can't have those conversations. What he is saying is that some people become so devoted to the point where they might even be addicted to dealing with some secondary issue of spirituality that they lose sight of the things that matter most. They become distracted. This is his concern. It's not that we can't talk about these things. It's that we shouldn't be devoted to some of these things. This is why we teach something called the buckets of belief, the undivided principles, the idea that we need to know where our beliefs fit in a categorization or a prioritization of beliefs so that we don't accidentally take a preference and treat it like a doctrine or take a conviction and treat it like it's our dogma. It's not that it's wrong to talk about those things or have beliefs about those things, not at all. The problem here is when they become devoted to them. It becomes a distraction for them from what really matters. We get a glimpse into what Paul has in mind in verse six, when he says some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. And here's what they're talking about. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about even though they speak so confidently. Paul doesn't give us a lot of detail about what he means by them wanting to be teachers of the law of Moses, but he is very specific in that phrase. So this is a problem probably similar to the problem that he wrote about in other churches and similar to a problem that he wrote about earlier to this church in Ephesus, because this is not Paul's first letter to the area. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians, not directed just at Timothy, but directed to the church. And he addresses this issue there as well. He addressed it with Galatia. He addressed it with Rome. And, and these were issues where people were coming in, trying to add elements of the Jewish law to the Christian faith and saying, that's great that you have Jesus. It's great that you believe in him, but there's these other things in the Mosaic law that you need to follow as well. There's these other stuff, and then you'll be right with God. So it's Jesus plus this. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not how it works at all. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but I'll, I'll give you a sample. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul's earlier letter to this church, he said he did this, Jesus, by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. 
So he ended the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. And then to the church in Galatia, not too far away. He said, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. And to the church in Rome, he wrote, sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. A few chapters later, he says, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Now, it's very possible that some of you are new and did not go through the message dedicated to this topic a couple of years ago. And if that's the case, I'm not going to spend a lot more time on it here. But I would encourage you to go to our website, go to the messages section, Look at the First Timothy series, and you will find a message entitled, The Good, the Bad, and the Law. And if you will go watch that message, you will be able to do a much deeper dive into what does Paul teach us about the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant Law, and whether it applies to us today or what parts apply to us today, and especially addressing a question that I think is very important, which is this. Why is it that we follow some parts of the Bible but not others? That's a very valid question, isn't it? Because all of us can think of parts of Scripture that are part of scripture, but we don't follow today. And we need to ask the question, is there a good reason for that? Is there a good biblical reason for that? I'm not going to get into it today. We don't have time. But if you go back and watch The Good, The Bad, and The Law, I love that title. If you watch The Good, The Bad, and The Law, you will uh, get a little deeper dive into that issue. But Paul's concern was the distraction of, of the Mosaic Law and, and perhaps other distractions, elements that were being treated as primary issues when they should have been secondary issues. And then we're going to end today with the challenge, the third C, the challenge. If there is one key verse, this entire letter to, to Timothy, I think that it's verse five. It sums up the whole point of what Paul is doing here. He says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. See, it would be so easy to read this letter and study this together and think that Paul's ultimate purpose was for people to be right in their beliefs. And he does want people to be right in their beliefs. You could also read this letter and walk away thinking he wants them to be right in all their actions. And he does want them to be right in their actions. He gives them a lot of specific instruction to help them take the right actions. But Paul, right here at the beginning of this letter, wants Timothy to know that despite all the specific stuff he's going to get into later on, the main purpose he has here is love. Filled with love from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. And wouldn't you like to be known for that? Isn't that a good list? A pure heart means that you have the right desires. You truly want what's best for other people. A clean conscience means you have the right motives. You aren't manipulating to try to get your way. A genuine faith means you don't get overly caught up in the things of the world or, or arguments or petty gossip or anything like that. Why? Because those things aren't as concerning to you because you have faith in God. You trust in God. And so no matter what's going on around you, no matter what's happening in this church or this community or in the world, even though you may have valid concerns about it, there's a part of you that goes, but God is in control and I trust in him and I have faith in him. But then Paul says in the very next verse, some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They're distracted. Distra and we do this too. We get distracted by the things of the world. We get distracted by secondary issues. 
There are all sorts of questions that we could dig into and spend tons of time on, and it's not wrong to study them. It can be wonderful to study them. It can be wonderful to think about and, and, and research some of these interesting questions of the faith and spirituality, but let's not lose sight of what matters most. And to that end, Paul shares towards the end of this chapter something that, that is so important to understanding that genuine faith. It's in verse 15. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. And then, here's the amazing thing, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul was chosen by God to be an example of one of the worst kinds of people imaginable whose life was radically transformed by Jesus. Jesus was a difference for him. And he was never the same person again. And Paul says the reason that happened was so that more people could hear that message and believe the same thing and they could have eternal life too. They can have faith in Jesus too. They can have a relationship with God. They can have healing from all of the, the horrible things that they experience in life and, and the guilt and the condemnation and for all the bad things that they have done. Healing even for the things that have been done to them and a new hope and faith in Jesus and in God that they could never have before. This is what matters most to Paul. And with all the other stuff we're gonna get into over the next few months, never lose sight of this main point of the letter. I want to give you a couple of thoughts as we leave today. One is for the, the believer who is, um, is constantly tempted to be distracted by other things. Take to heart this message that Paul had to his protege, Timothy. Evidently, he felt like Timothy needed a reminder, and I need a reminder too, and I'll bet you do as well. No matter how long you have trusted in Jesus, there are all these things that tempt to get us off track from what he wants us to be about. The fact that God saved you should make a difference in how you live your life every day, Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday. And it should be an example to other people, an opportunity for you to share with others about this amazing hope that you have. Your life should be different and you should be telling other people how your life is different. Let your light shine so that they can see your good works and then they too will praise your Father in heaven because they come a part of his kingdom as well. That's my challenge to those of you that have been believers a long time. But there may be people in this room right now or watching online who have never trusted in Jesus. They've never experienced what Paul experienced. What he says is the most important thing. Look, we're gonna talk about all kinds of stuff in this series and you may agree with us or you may disagree with us and you know what? That's okay. There's gonna be a lot of stuff we share that you may walk away and say, mm, I don't know. I agree with 80%, this part I'm not so sure about. Okay, that's fine. But here's one thing we all need to agree on. We are sinful people. Sinful people who can have no relationship with God and who can do nothing to overcome the sin, the bad things that we have done, the bad things that we have thought. Jesus said that, that the thoughts of doing wrong are just as bad as the deeds of doing wrong when we dwell on those things. And so we are sinful people. We don't deserve to have a relationship with God. And yet, Jesus Christ came to this world as a human, even though he is God, lived a perfect life. He died on a cross as a substitute for our sin, our penalty for our sin, so that he could take that on himself and we could get his righteousness. There's this exchange that happens where he takes our sin and we take his righteousness. 
But he says, the way to become a part of my family and a part of my kingdom is to believe in me. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to recognize there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And it's not Jesus plus something else. That was the problem that they dealt with in many of these early churches. Yeah, Jesus is good, but you got to do this stuff too. No. For salvation, it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you try to add anything else to that, then you are lessening the value of Jesus. Right? If you have to add anything, then Jesus wasn't enough. I'm going to ask if you would just to close your eyes for a minute. And if you're watching online at home, I don't care what you do because I can't see you. But in this room, close your eyes for a minute just so that you can think, just so that you can focus. Focus in your heart. For those of you that have been a Christian a long time, is there something in your life that's a distraction that you need to confess and turn over to God? For those of you that are not currently a follower of Jesus, Today is a great day to place your trust in him. Let me just tell you briefly how you can do that. You can pray and talk to God right now. And you can say, Lord, I understand that I am a sinful person, that I don't deserve to be in a relationship with you. And I feel miserable and I've had all these problems and I can't seem to resolve them. And I'm pretty convinced now that you're the only answer. And so, Lord, I ask for you to take away my sin. I want your forgiveness. Lord, would you forgive me? I confess my sin to you. And God, I pray that you would save me Save me from myself. Save me from the consequences of this sin. Heal me. Give me a new life. Transform me like you transformed Paul so that I can represent you just like he did, so that I can spend eternity with you, so that I can be part of your family. And if you do that today, and you mean that sincerely in your heart, the Bible says that Jesus is going to transform your life and you are going to be a new person with new thoughts, new desires. You're not going to be perfect all of a sudden. I hate to break it to you but you are going to have some new thoughts and new desires and he's going to start working on you and changing you in your life in so many ways. And if you do that today, make sure you let us know or let someone around you know because we want to support you in that walk as you explore your faith in Christ. Let me pray for you right now. Jesus, thank you for inspiring Paul and changing his life in such a way that he was able to then go on to impact so many other lives. And it continues today. We're learning from him today, God. I pray that you would help us to take these lessons and and glean from them truth that we can use tomorrow, that we can remember to not be distracted by the things that constantly tempt us to, to get off track from our focus on you. Help us to remember what you've done for us. And and then help us to to let out of that flow this love for other people from a pure heart and a clean conscience and a genuine faith. Help us, Lord, to have a faith that is bigger than all the problems we face in the world, bigger than anything that might happen this week or that happened last week, Lord. May our faith overshadow all of those things. And as we dig into the details of 1 Timothy more and more in the coming months, Lord, help us to remember the main purpose, the main things that matter, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, and yet you save me. Oh, what a hope that that gives us, Lord. What a relief that is. And that then we are supposed to have a love for other people, regardless of whether we agree on everything. Help us to be filled with love. In Jesus' name we pray.